0: Hello and welcome to the CSJ's Beyond Westminster podcast, where we bring you real stories from across Britain's forgotten communities. It's no secret that the UK has a productivity problem. Most indicators show that UK growth is sluggish, productivity outside of financial services is poor, and real wages have barely moved since the great financial crisis of 2008, with serious implications for our economy and the lives of the most disadvantaged. With a general election on the horizon, both the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Leader of the Opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, have made kickstarting the British economy their principal priority. But what needs to happen to kickstart this growth? In this week's episode, the CSJ's own policy director, Gavin Rice, discusses rebooting British manufacturing with our guests, Miriam Cates, the MP for Penniston and Stockbridge, Bavina Barkata, from the Manufacturers Association Make UK, and Christopher Nieper, CEO of David Nieper, a British textiles manufacturer based in Alfreton in Derbyshire.
1: A better future is one where our economy is growing faster so that everybody, everywhere across our union has new opportunities for better paying good jobs. So said the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in his first speech of this year. Our economy has become more and more unbalanced. With our fortunes hitched to a few industries in one corner of the country, while we let other sectors like manufacturing slide. It has become far too dependent on the public sector, with over half of all jobs created in the last 10 years associated in some way with public spending. That was the former Prime Minister David Cameron speaking back in 2010. So the topic for today is clearly not a new one. I'm Gavin Rice, Policy Director here at the Centre for Social Justice, and this is the Beyond Westminster podcast. The Centre for Social Justice recently released a report, Making the Change, a plan to reboot British manufacturing and restore growth, which was quoted by the Leveling Up Secretary, Michael Gove, at the recent Convention of the North, in which he called for a new industrial strategy to increase manufacturing and boost jobs and investment outside of the South East. And today we are going to be discussing the question, does Britain make anything anymore and does it matter? So first of all, I'm going to go to our very special guest, who I'm very pleased to have here today with us at the Centre for Social Justice, Miriam Cates, who is the MP for Penistone and Stocksbridge. Hello, Miriam.
2: Hello, lovely to be here.
1: Fantastic to have you with us here today. And you represent a constituency in South Yorkshire that's got a very strong manufacturing uh, heritage and um, legacy. Um, Often these kinds of discussions can get very uh, bogged down in the weeds of economic discussions around GDP and gross value added and productivity and all of these words that are actually very important but can switch people off. But actually this question of UK manufacturing has got a really human level of importance, hasn't it? And so from your perspective, why is manufacturing important to the sorts of communities that you know so well and that you represent
2: well, just to give the example of my constituency, so I represent a town called Stocksbridge, which is a town 10 miles off the north of Sheffield, which has obviously got a very strong uh, manufacturing heritage itself. But Stocksbridge is a town that is built around steel um, and the steel works that still takes up the majority of the valley in Stocksbridge used to employ 11,000 people it now employs less than 800. So you can see from those changes in numbers how important this decline in manufacturing is just to the the feel of the town, let alone the economics. Um, And so, of course, the decline in manufacturing has been catastrophic to places like Stocksbridge because of the, the, the size of the industry in comparison to the town.
1: And do you feel as though there has been a decline of manufacturing in your constituency?
2: Well, yes. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves in terms of the numbers employed... Um but also the, the businesses that are left have had to change their business model very substantially so they now produce a lot of bespoke um, products They're often very successfully they export around the world but the number of people involved in the manufacture is now a fraction of what it was um, at its heyday and not only has that had an economic impact in terms of you know, jobs locally, it's also meant that people have had to leave the constituency to find work, particularly young people, which again has, has changed the demographic of these towns quite substantially.
1: And so obviously that's going to have a very profound economic impact uh, in terms of jobs and investment and, and so on. But it always seems to me when you talk about the kinds of um, communities that we're discussing here, that there's, there's often quite a profound social impact as well when these sorts of industries do go into decline in certain areas. Could you talk a bit about perhaps some of the, the kind of the social impact mm-hmm. side?
2: Well, originally the steel industry in Stocksbridge built a lot of the social infrastructure and some of that still survives. A football club, a golf club, things like that, that really brought the community together. And I suppose when you do have one industry that that, uh, employs such a high proportion of the local uh, population, there is a sense of community endeavour, of shared endeavour, of a shared purpose and identity, which obviously becomes very fractured if the number of people employed in that industry collapses. Um, But it's not just about this kind of community cohesion. It is also a sense of pride uh, that's gone and although we still have very high employment rates overall from a historical perspective the jobs that have replaced the steel jobs are not as well paid they're not as secure they don't confer the same kind of status Uh, and in your report I think you 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 make clear that manufacturing jobs pay about 12% more than median wage well in Yorkshire the steel industry pays 50% more than the median wage so these were jobs that you could support a family on that gave you status and the jobs that have replaced them some of these service jobs that again you point out in your report, are rarely well paid just do not meet the same requirements for pay and status and security Um, and so I suppose the whole community economically and socially is a lot less stable uh, than it once was and there isn't this path through life that's that set out in the way that it was in the old days. Now, there are advantages to that. You know, we very much like choice, don't we, these days, and the idea that your future is set out for you as a young man um, forever in the steel industry, perhaps there, there are negatives to that as well. But there certainly was a security and a status in that that's gone.
1: And do you think the manufacturing industries uh, that remain and that continue to thrive, are they viewed as a desirable pathway for uh, on the part of young people? Is it something that they want to do? or is it something that they're even aware of
2: i think awareness is is the key and uh, when i speak to manufacturers in my constituency they really struggle to recruit even though they pay very well that they train you know young people in skills uh, they have good progression compared to other industries um, and other sectors, they struggle to get kids to come and have a look round, let alone start an apprenticeship. And I think that, again, is because in our education system, we have idolised the cognitive pathways. So further education, higher education, cognitive work. And so we've given young people the impression that the only way to successful jobs, to productive jobs is through more and more cognitive education. And so age 14, 15, they don't even consider manufacturing as a plausible pathway into work and careers. And I think it is an attitude thing, uh, a problem that we've got even in schools, even in areas that do have this industrial heritage are struggling to find young people to, to move into that line of work
1: that 's really interesting, and obviously modern manufacturing of the kind that continues in the developed world such as great britain it 's often of a uh, a more um, a more kind of sophisticated and less labor intensive nature perhaps than it than it used to be and has therefore become increasingly um, if you like egalitarian is open to both men and women much more so and that 's a good thing but you 've spoken very eloquently in the House of Commons particularly about sort of the um, the prospects facing young men, especially working class young men in the sorts of um, communities um, that, that you represent. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes. Well, a lot in the news a lot at the moment is this idea of toxic masculinity and how we must combat toxic masculinity. And of course we must. But to do that, we have to have a vision for positive masculinity. And I think we've got to, to be honest that Uh, Unlike a few generations ago, there are no obvious pathways um, to purpose and prosperity for young men as there were in the past. Um, And, you know, again, we can can talk about the merits of women going back to work after having children and all those kind of things. But the reality for most families is, at least in the early years of children's life, that the man, the father, is the breadwinner. And if there are no jobs out there that can provide that breadwinner role, the breadwinner salary, then why would young men want to become fathers become husbands to have a stake in society as they used to want to do and we see so much in the news and in parliament and in, in the media how do we get more young women into stem subjects how do we get more young women into manufacturing industries and of course those options should be there but i went round one of my uh, the manufacturers in my patch um a couple of years ago and they were explaining how hard it was to get women into apprenticeships so i thought well why are you putting so much effort into finding women to be apprenticeships? Why are you not just, you know, going out to people who want to do it? And I think, you know, from a young man's perspective, perhaps it looks like all the effort is going into getting women into traditionally men's jobs rather than working out how to create these pathways for young men as they used to be.
1: So if these industries are important then um, for the regional economy, for regional jobs, regional communities and uh, and all the rest, what more could and should the government be Doing
2: Well, how long have you got, going? I mean, um, there's a lot that the government can do. And I think if you compare, I mean, obviously, you know, other manufacturing options are available, but the steel, the steel industry is, is what I know about. And certainly if you compare the steel industry to our competitor countries, France, Germany, the States, our steel manufacturers pay you know, 60, 70 percent more for their energy than the French and the German manufacturers. So it's basic things like that that make commodity steel production in the UK is almost unprofitable now. Um, and that is very much a political choice. You know, we could support our industry in the same way as the French and the Germans do, but we don't. Um, and of course, that has repercussions, which means that we make less steel. Uh, British steel is less competitive. We lose jobs. We then have regional inequality. Um, and we don't really have this policy of supporting British manufacturers in the way that other countries do. And I think part of that is that as conservatives, we are too tied to this free market ideology, if you want to call it that. And we think that, you know, the only way forward is open borders, free trade. But most other countries don't work like that and therefore there are no free markets. So if every other country is supporting their steel industry, why wouldn't we? If we are really are national conservatives, if we really believe in a vision for this country, why wouldn't we support our foundational industries?
1: That's really, really interesting. And now we've kind of segued onto that question of, of, of policy and, uh, and kind of the wider economic situation uh, and manufacturing's role in that.
0: You are listening to the CSJ's Beyond Westminster podcast on the topic of manufacturing, what does Britain make, and why does this sector matter? We just heard insightful analysis of the manufacturing industry's policy landscape from Miriam Cates, MP. We're now going to hear from Bhavina Barkata of Make UK, who will share her insight into why the manufacturing industry is critical to our economy today, and why it's more important than ever to grow the number and quality of jobs in this sector.
1: I'd like to bring in Bavina Bacada, who's joining us from Make UK, the Manufacturers Association, who will know all things British manufacturing. Um, Bavina, both Make UK, I believe, and the Centre for Social Justice have called for the government to set a target of increasing manufacturing in our economy up from 9% where it sits now to 15%. Uh, That's something I think we're in agreement on. From your perspective or the perspective of Make UK, why is manufacturing so important and why should we value jobs in the industries of the companies you represent?
3: Thanks, Gavin. So I think it's sure what we make in the UK matters. Um, And I think it matters not just to those local communities, but also to the people that work in those jobs. So Miriam's right that we've changed from this kind of labour intensive sector to something that is much more high value much more capital intensive as a result we've seen kind of the number of jobs in the sector decline, but that doesn't take away from the value of the sector so about half of everything we export in the UK comes from the manufacturing sector. Our wages are 12% higher on, on average across the, across the economy. 64% of all business research and development comes from the manufacturing sector as well, and including 15% of all general business investment. So those statistics matter, but I think for the jobs, the 2.5 million jobs um, here in the UK, that matters to those people because actually it's more than what we see in the financial services. It's more than construction and transport. And I think often there's this perception that we we don't make anything in the UK, but there are so many people in constituencies across the UK who make valuable things. And that's why we say that the manufacturing sector is the economic engine of the UK and the world's workshop. It's not just a slogan. We genuinely mean it. And people are proud to be part of that sector.
1: Well, I'm really pleased that you um, introduced some of the um, more positive stories in that, because my next question was going to be that, you know, Britain remains the ninth largest manufacturer in the world, which is something that is often overlooked. Um, it has to be said that until I think it was 2009, we were the sixth largest. So we have slid down the rankings a little bit, but that's still pretty good considering our population size and, and so on. Um, but at the same time, uh, manufacturing is now only 9% of the economy. And that has slid lower than it has in other European countries and other comparative countries in the OECD. Um Focusing on the positive first, what are Britain's remaining core strengths and which are the industries that we're really doing well at?
3: Well, I think if you were to ask Christopher, your next guest, he'll probably say textiles, which is definitely one of them. But I think because the manufacturing sector is so varied, it includes everything from kind of metals, pharmaceuticals to transports. If I was just to pick a few, we've got an incredible food and drinks industry in the UK. If you love chocolate, Cadbury's is based here. Costa Coffee sprung up here as well. Lincolnshire is an amazing leader in kind of food automation and robotics. But we've also seen kind of plastic manufacturers at the forefront of the response to the COVID pandemic. Lots of manufacturers repurpose their production lines to produce medically graded masks. And I think it shows not only the resilience of our sector, but the innovation that's at the heart of manufacturing. So when we think about the challenges in the future, whether it's digitalization, climate change, that's the strength of the manufacturing sector. We can innovate, we can create. We are natural born problem solvers. So when we think about those problems, you need to put manufacturing at the heart of that. I think you're right in saying that we certainly slid down the rankings in terms of um, the largest manufacturing nations in the world. Some of that goes back to a government that needs to prioritise our sector. Um, You'll hear Make UK speak lots about the lack of an industrial strategy. That is really important to signal to manufacturers that what we make here is really important and we will support the industry to develop that. What we don't have so much is that long-term vision, that long-term ambition and then the backing of long-term policy to push that through so we've been calling for that so that means less policy chop and change but the kind of stability that we need to be able to invest to grow to thrive um, which we just simply haven't seen in the last few years
1: and other are, are other countries that we could compare ourselves to doing more to support their domestic industries what sorts of things going on outside of the uk
3: So I think the obvious one is Germany. I think people will obviously look at that and think um, there's a really strong industrial base and I think there's examples of um, countries taking quite a proactive approach to intervening. Um, I think there's a refined balance to be struck between intervening where businesses need government support but also letting those businesses thrive. So we've seen obviously across the pond the US um, Inflation Reduction Act, which is all about trying to stimulate those green industries That's an example of kind of proactive intervention, which signals to businesses, to investors that we are going to pump money into this sector and we want to take you with us. We want you to invest in that as well. We need a bit of that because we will fall behind. We will lose our competitive edge. And that's why we're sort of sliding down that scale. I think it can be challenging because where do we go? What direction do we take? What does a post Brexit UK look like? What are the opportunities for us? And I think businesses need to work with government hand in hand to develop that. But I think building that conducive business environment needs to come from government. I think the example I always give is if a flower doesn't grow, it's not necessarily the flower. It's the environment in which that flower is growing so what can we do collectively this is not just about government state intervention what can we collectively do to make that happen and we can learn lessons from other countries as well but ultimately the uk has quite a unique history in manufacturing and we need to really play to that strength
1: it's a really good um really good metaphor there um, i'm really glad you mentioned net zero um and uh and the sort of the the, um, the energy transition, we, as part of the research for this, convened over 60 manufacturers um, for a conference in Leicester to get their perspectives of what it's like to try and run a manufacturing industry in the UK and to um, be effective exporters as well. And the cost of energy in particular as part of their overheads was one of the things that really came up very strongly. Um is that something that you're seeing as well at the moment with your members and the businesses you represent, and in, particularly with the current cost of energy crisis? What does that mean for British manufacturing?
3: So when we surveyed businesses at the beginning of this year, 70% said that the rising cost of energy, industrial energy, is the biggest threat they face um, to the, this year. I think that says it all. I think most manufacturers will welcome the support we had from government to reduce energy prices and shield them to some extent, but we're seeing that support end at the end of March. There is a bit of a cliff edge and I think there is that concern in the sector, even if you're not an energy intensive user, that your bills will rocket and generally the cost of doing business will become so great, you may have to, for example, cut back on training, investment, and we don't want to be in that position. Um, Some of those are short-term factors, some of those are out of the control of government, but I think what we can do is protect as many manufacturing businesses as we can. And it's not just about protecting those businesses, but it's also just the jobs within those as well. So what we don't want to do is be in a position where there's layoffs, redundancies. Um, Unfortunately, in that same piece of research we did, 13% of manufacturers said they are considering shutdowns and closures which is a real, real concern. I think we're working with government to kind of make sure not just energy intensive manufacturers, but all businesses within that sector are supported. But that doesn't take away from the other headwinds that are facing manufacturers. So ongoing labour shortages, um, supply chain disruptions, um, both those things are still a huge, huge issue. Um, But that kind of proactive engagement with government to come to a collective solution is what we really need to support the sector, get back on its feet, and then we can think about that all-important G word, growth.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, You know, just to kind of circulate back to a point that Miriam made a couple of minutes ago, some of the, or one of the counter-arguments that you often get when you're sort of Making these arguments for a pro-manufacturing policy or an industrial strategy is the idea that the market should simply rule. If we don't have a comparative advantage in these industries anymore, it's because other countries, the you know the, the developing world, etc., or China or wherever it may be, can simply do these things more cheaply. They've got lower overheads, and therefore we should just accept that that is the future, and that therefore we are going to have to rely on importing manufacturers um, in in the future rather than making them ourselves. So I'd like to get your view, first of all, on that, but also, secondly, kind of reacting to that. There's increasing conversation at the moment, especially since the pandemic, about the idea of reshoring and actually calling into question our reliance on these global supply chains, particularly from potentially quite um, worrisome overseas economies. You know, we've talked about China and, and, and so on, um, and the, kind of this question of national security and, and, and resilience. So, so what do you think about those, those two things?
3: I'll take the first one. Um, I think think there is a general concern that some of our foundational industries, things that have been traditionally quite important, may almost die out. That's not scaremongering. That's a genuine threat. If we don't invest in those sectors, if we don't encourage young people to join, if we don't have those workforces, we won't have that sector. Um, And that's where kind of that partnership with the businesses and government is really important so that we can protect really important industries like manufacturing. that includes our steel industry. We do things really well in the UK. We have some of the best problem solvers there is. So we can't just outsource that to someone else. We need to protect that. So the idea of tying in your second question, reshoring, I think to a certain extent, that can help to almost re-ignite some of the manufacturing industries to bring people into the sector. Um, But I think we have to be realistic about what we can be sure. We already have a labour shortage. We already have a skills challenge to bring back some of those supply chains, I think would be really, really challenging. And where you don't have the kind of investment you need from government to open new factories and create the kind of clusters of innovation to be able to bring back some of those supply chains, that will be really difficult. Also, don't forget how long it will take to do this. Change takes a long time. So we can have the discussion about reassuring, but I think we probably need to think about in the time scale or time frame of things, realistically, you're talking 10, 15, 20 years. That's not a reason not to do it, um, but it's something we should bear in mind. The other thing I would just say is, we have seen some appetite from manufacturers to consider reshoring, but it comes from a space of building a portfolio of different suppliers where you can then build in resilience. So it's not necessarily replacing supply chains. For example, in China, it's having multiple different ones. So if we have an external shop like we did We had several over the last couple of years. We can manage that a little bit better because we're not exposed. Um, The other thing I'll throw in there, friendshoring is also becoming a thing. So moving a lot Mm, closer to countries where you have kind of shared interests, shared values, um, but is definitely one to watch and one we've heard from manufacturers recently.
1: I'm really glad that you raised the skills and training question, which I want to circulate back to in a minute, because I think it's really critical. But just before you do so, I'm just going to come back to Miriam for a moment. Um, Miriam, I'd love to get your political take on this and and kind of what's going on in our national political conversation because it seems to me that this question of manufacturing and its importance has come up for two reasons at the same time. The first reason is the discussion around leveling up and the importance of rebalancing our economy of communities which perhaps have been economically left behind, of getting a better quality of jobs into more parts of the country, as uh, Rishi Sunak's been talking about recently, and of course Boris Johnson before that. Um, But then secondly, there's the post-pandemic context of us um, finding ourselves perhaps overly exposed to international supply chains and increasing concerns about China and that sort of thing. Um, Is there a sense in which this is kind of almost a bit back in fashion? Is this something that people are more willing to talk about on perhaps, you know, you're from the Conservative Party and the Conservative world than they used to be? What do you think is going on? What's to use the parlance of the day? What's the vibe?
2: Yes, I think um, the pandemic shattered the um, idealism of globalism, didn't it? This idea that as long as we can get it cheap, as long as we can get it at the best value, then it doesn't matter where it's made. And I think we saw the national security implications of that during the pandemic when um, some of the supply chains were interrupted, when we realized that China isn't perhaps the friendly partner that uh, was once believed. And so, yes, I think I think this idea of um, we won't call it protectionism, but self-sufficiency is definitely back in fashion. Um, and of course it should be because that's what the realignment that produced Brexit was all about of course it was about immigration and sovereignty and all those things but I think particularly in my patch it was about this, this feeling that the North, the industrial heartlands that built the prosperity of this nation are now no longer sharing in that, in that prosperity because a lot of the, the things that we did that we made have been outsourced to other countries with, with you know terrible economic consequences for the region so yes I do think we have a, a window now of opportunity to actually speak about these things again and not seem like we're being protectionist or we're not conservative, but actually this is sensible planning for security, for economics, for levelling up.
1: And um, yeah, I I, I agree with that, actually. That's the sense that I get as well. Um, And I'd just like to bring in now Christopher Nieper, who is joining us all the way from Uh, from uh, Alfredton in Derbyshire. This is, after all, the Beyond Westminster podcast. Christopher, hello, good afternoon. Um, I'd I'd like to um, just get your sense of what you feel as though the challenges and the opportunities are of British manufacturing, particularly coming from um, the part of the world that, that you do. You obviously run a successful British manufacturing business. You have very successfully employed... Uh, and upskilled local people and you continue to export as well heroically um could you just talk us a little bit through your experience and uh, and what it's been like running your business
4: yeah thank you very much gavin for inviting me this morning look um manufacturing is a wonderful thing to do and you asked me how how on earth we managed to survive over all these years we've been we've been making ladies fashion here in derbyshire for 60 years and we've never gone offshore and it might surprise you actually but our secret is local skills i've really come to the conclusion that it's all about people you know sustainability over the long term isn't dependent on who has the cheapest price or who has the cheapest debt it's not even about buildings or who has a special niche product or niche service It's actually about people, because it's people who solve all of those. And the way we've done it over all these 60 years is through investing in local people. And I think what we've got to do is we've got to rekindle that right across the country uh, by working with schools, working with universities. And this is the way we can bring the manufacturing back. Besides, we like making things. It's a very satisfying thing to do.
1: Well, Christopher, you've done amazing work with um, uh, the school, which you're associated with, with the academy um, in Alfredton. Um, how do you try to kind of um, embed principles of, of, of good work, of aspiration, but perhaps also flagging the opportunities that might exist in manufacturing or businesses like yours to those children, to those young people?
4: Look, young people are our future. There's no question about that. And... We we realise that to be here for another sixty years, we have got to have another generation. It would be so easy to close the factory and go offshore to where all the skills are already. And the hard thing to do is to start all over again with with local skills. And you know, as as our sector, our fashion sector has. Um, practically dissolved, let's say, over the last 30 years, along with the demise of British manufacturing generally, but particularly in textiles. You know, this town was a textile town. Uh, Most of the women would have worked in textiles, and most of the men would have worked in coal mines. And we had seven coal mines in this town. And of course, they've all gone, both of them, actually. And so we have to work with young people. And to our horror, the local school here had been uh, falling on hard times, and it had lost its way and it had become not just the worst school in Derbyshire, but in the bottom 2% of all English schools for its attainment. And we realised that that would in time collapse the local economy and of course collapse our opportunity to stay here for another 60 years. So really to answer your question about what we have to do, we not only have to support young people, but we have to prepare these young people for the world beyond the school gates and beyond the school gates means giving them what it takes to get on in their career, giving them what it takes to become really successful and that's social mobility. And so we've come up with a, um a scheme i should say that we've sponsored the local school by the way we formed a trust and we've adopted it and we've formed a multi-academy trust and the school after six years is now gone from one third full to the sixth most oversubscribed school in the county and one of the key things we're trying to do here is to build an employability agenda and that's all about getting employability skills right through the curriculum through the curriculum giving children meaningful exposures to the world of work, developing their emotional intelligence, of course, and leadership attributes and giving them highest aspirations, you know, sense of re- uh, responsibility and self-belief. And you can do all these things in a school, through sport, through music, through drama, through art, through positions of responsibility, all the sort of things that perhaps Ofsted doesn't measure enough of. But if you do those, I think we can really get into those young people, what it takes to be successful in their careers. And that's not just working for us, it's in any career in any sector services you know manufacturing public sector private sector and i think that's the way we can grow the local economy from within the town
1: well krista i've um, visited your sites and your community in alfton and uh, it really is um, a really incredible thing to see you know you're a fantastic example of someone who's been able to run a business that is profitable uh, without selling up without you know um, offshoring and and so on but has also done amazing things with the local school and is very active in your community Um, are are you a one-off or if not how can we encourage others to follow this example is this something which could be spread more widely across the country
4: well it's a (laughs) I hope we're not a one off, at least I don't think we should be a one off, but it's very kind of you to suggest that. Look, it's a great disappointment that Britain has lost its way in manufacturing and it's certainly a disappointment in textiles. Textiles, by the way, is when it's manufactured offshore is extremely wasteful and damaging for the environment. And I know Bavina talked about net zero a minute ago and we could probably come back to that. but we don't need to be a one-off, and I think we're living proof that we can manufacture in Britain without needing to go offshore. Miriam, thank you for saying that the pandemic has shattered the illusion of globalization. Well, of course we can be self-sufficient and of course we need to be self-sufficient. And uh, the pandemic has shown just how exposed we have been to PPE, but we could produce these things or at least produce them on a low level so that we're ready tooled up so that when the next pandemic comes, we're able to pounce on it and supply our, our own needs. And I don't see why British Um, the British government can't support our sector for example by producing the textiles which we need perhaps the clothing for the armed forces perhaps all the clothing for the NHS perhaps you know uniforms for schools perhaps um, I don't know everything we need for prisons etc all of this stuff could be produced and procured here in the UK on a low level so that we have at least that capability no I think self-sufficiency is what we need and I don't think we should be a lone lone player in this, we should be able to reproduce this. And I'm sure I can give you one or two examples of how the government could quite easily uh, kindle this in Britain.
1: Why don't you fire away with those examples, Christopher?
4: Well, okay. Um, I think what we're not doing enough of is harnessing the private sector. And I think the government could easily harness skills creation by the private sector. And what we could do is to create, for example, a skills tax rebate. So if, for example, we were to offer to invest, let's say, £10,000 in manufacturing skills in a forgotten community, a levelling up community, would the government match it? Or how about if we were to donate £10,000 to a school to support local teachers uh, and employability for their young people? Might the government match that? Or how about we were to donate the same to pay tuition fees for university students? Uh, particularly for children from a deprived community. Might the government match that? And in this kind of way, we could incentivize the private sector to create skills from within local communities, which is what leveling up surely is all about. And by doing that, we get the market forces to support the right skills that are relevant and appropriate for each community and each town right across the country. So I think that's one really good way we could do this. A second way would be to adopt an employability um, agenda of the type I've just talked about. And the government could easily work with multi-academy trusts and maintain schools across the country and prepare children for life beyond the school gates, because that's how we harness a local workforce and we generate the economy from within. And a third area, if you like a third one, uh, could be in net zero. And I know we've got a net zero uh, department now with Grant Chaps, but I don't see why we can't use the goodwill of British people. Instead of forcing us to adopt net zero, just inform us of what is a good purchase to make. We're very good on food labelling, of informing people how much salt and fat there is in certain foods. Well, how about we inform people with labelling, labeling, in our case of garments. This garment is made at net zero or a scale of A, B, C, D, like a fridge label. And if you inform the customer, it costs nothing to inform them. And then they can make a choice. And I think they would support local manufacture because local manufacture, of course, produces far less um, greenhouse gases than bringing things halfway around the world.
1: Well, at the Center for Social Justice, we are, Absolutely dead keen on solutions rather than just problems. And we have some really interesting thoughts on on solutions from Christopher there. And we also seek to bring the voice of the front lines and those with real experience of areas to bear uh, and get, as this podcast is called, beyond Westminster. So really, really um, great to get your insights there, Christopher. Um, The subject of skills and training keeps coming back up. I'm going to come back to Bavina here. Um, When I spoke to a number of manufacturers at um, at, a, at our sort of fact-finding conference in Leicester one of them said to me that they they just couldn't find a skilled welder for example that the average age of one in their business was about 50 and they just didn't know where the pipeline was going to come from there was the, there was the demand there was the need for a skilled welder but they just didn't know how they were going to get hold of them um, from your perspective what do we need to be doing to ensure that there is a skills pipeline for the industries that we have
3: Yes, I think if you speak to any manufacturer, I don't think I've spoken to a single one who hasn't told me that accessing skills in their local community isn't a challenge. Every single one I've spoken to has has said that. And it's moved from just a skill shortage to a genuine labour shortage. So even getting people into the business is becoming really difficult, which is why there's so much emphasis on recruitment as well as retention. Um, But often when we think about the new kind of jobs that will be created. We think digitalization, green skills, all well and good. But there is a genuine shortage of key skills like welding. You yep. need welders in our industry and that's why we said to the government you need to review the shortage occupation list asap it hasn't been reviewed in two years there was a commitment to do so but that really needs to reflect and be agile enough to reflect the skills that businesses need because if we can't get them here we will inevitably have to bring people in on a short-term basis but that is a short-term fix we need to think about the skills pipeline in terms of the long term. And that's where Christopher's comments on kind of building that pipeline become really important. You have to start young. You have to drip feed that information over years. You need to share what manufacturing is like. I think there's still quite negative connotations around the word manufacturing. Why is that? And that takes, sorry? Why is that? I think it's a mixture of, if we think back, People will think of factories, steam blowing out that factory. People go into the coal mines. It's quite a traditional view of manufacturing, maybe because their parents, grandparents worked in that industry. Trying to change that to show that actually, if you go to most manufacturing sites, um, actually, often it's like pristine, clean floor. There's robotics, there's automation. Um, If you go to some sites, there will be people with incredible, like hand skills, making like fine, fine embroidery, fine work on bags and all those kind of things. Or if you go to an automotive site, there'll be amazing F1 cars everywhere, engines. Until you set foot in that factory, you will not know what manufacturing is. But the difficulty is getting people into the factory. And that's why early engagement with schools, with teachers becomes incredibly, incredibly important. That's not us suggesting it's just on teachers to do that. That's a a call and a plea for manufacturers to say, reach out to your local school, go and engage with them, make that case that actually I'm going to hold an open day. That's why we set up National Manufacturing Day, an open house for people to go and visit their local manufacturer. Um, but campaigns like the Royal Academy of Engineering's Engineering Day is a really good example of trying to just change that complete image of, of engineering. Um, it's a challenge. It's going to take years, but persistent work, consistently sharing what that is and, and doing things like this become really important. When we have MPs championing what those sectors do, and maybe post-pandemic is the perfect opportunity, we will eventually change that. So... I'm hoping that we can encourage more people in, but it takes time it's it's not an easy thing to do uh,
1: Miriam, it seems from the government's perspective and the wider economy we need more growth we need more economic activity um and then you'd think from the perspective of young people they want good jobs they want better paid jobs than we have at the moment. there's a lot of um I think a lot of disgruntlement out there about the the relatively low pay in the British economy and it seems rightly so as well. And also people want stable jobs where there's progression. Um, It it seems very, very strange that we can't produce the skills that we need to fill the jobs that actually do exist. So what's going on? Are we not teaching young people the right things?
2: Yes, I think we're not teaching young people the right things. And I think the reason for that is that our money is going in the wrong place. And we talked about how difficult it is, especially for small manufacturers to, to recruit young people. And one of the reasons for that is that they can't afford to train them up with the right skills in order for them to be able to join the business and become profitable. If you are a small manufacturer with 10, 12 employees, it's a huge investment to bring someone up uh, to the kind of skill level that they need. And I think the problem is at the moment that you know, we're spending £14 billion pounds a year on universities 50% of graduates don't get graduate jobs because there just aren't enough graduate jobs and that's not where the skill shortages is, are. If we repurpose some of that money, if we said to young people instead of spending £30,000 on your degree that actually isn't going to improve your economic prospects and actually you're not going to pay your student loan back so that's thirty grand lost to the taxpayer, why not give that thirty grand to a local employer to train someone up and give them a job that has got productivity, does have prospects and is adding them to the economy and I I think we've got this top heavy or university heavy system of training and skills that is not adding value to our economy and it, it desperately needs repurposing and I think that feeds into the earlier point of why isn't why aren't manufacturing jobs why don't they have the status in society and I think that's because we've pushed everybody to this idea of the only way to get on the only way to become middle class in Tony Blair's language is to get a degree and that's no longer working for our economy and we need to as we reverse where we put the money we'll also reverse where the status goes.
1: Do we need uh, an apprenticeships revolution?
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think we need to give young people genuine options, uh, not just university or nothing, but, but you know, apprenticeships. And I think, if you allow me just to make a point on, on net zero, um, I think we need to be very careful what we measure. And what seems to be happening at the moment is uh, companies import, let's say steel, from other countries' China, India, Turkey, where this steel has a much greater carbon footprint. But because it wasn't manufactured here, they don't count the carbon footprint of that steel. And so British steel is automatically disadvantaged. All the government needs to do is change how it's calculated, and suddenly British steel becomes much more attractive. So I completely agree with Christopher. It's what we label, it's how we label it that will make the big difference.
1: Well, we are rapidly running out of time. But what I am going to do is I am going to give each of our excellent guests last word and unfairly I'm going to actually start with Miriam and then going to come round Bavina and then to um, Christopher. So um, Miriam, um, why does manufacturing matter and what should we do about it in a sentence? (laughs) (laughs) Totally unfair.
2: Um, It matters because it's the quickest way to bring growth back to this country and to give young people the secure and high
3: status jobs that they deserve.
1: Veena, over to you. Um, I'm going to go same question. Why does it matter? And what should we do about it?
3: It matters because our manufacturing base is going to be really important to the UK self-sufficiency and future economic prosperity.
1: Christopher, as the, uh, as the manufacturer here, I'm going to give you the last word.
4: Manufacturing gives us great pride in making things in Britain and I think if we can bring manufacturing and the world of education together we could create a fusion of education and opportunity and bring back pride to local communities by making things in Britain all over again.
1: Well I'm afraid we are out of time here today but I would like to give a uh, very warm thank you to all of the um, superb guests today. Thank you Miriam Bavina and to Christopher as well. Thanks very much for your time and for your um, really fascinating insights. This has been the Beyond Westminster podcast. I'm Gavin Rice, policy director here at the Centre for Social Justice. See you next time.
0: If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to our channel for more interesting content like this and follow us on Twitter at CSJ Think Tank for more updates.